0: Hello, welcome to episode 11 of Art Lives. My name is Elizabeth De La Mater, and on this podcast, I talk with artists one-on-one about their art, their lives, and how they navigate the world. This episode features the unabridged version of my chat with musician, educator, author, and instrument designer, manufacturer, Rebecca Kite. This episode contains everything that is in Episode Ten, plus further details about Rebecca's life, her marimba study, an explanation about the timpani she designed and made with Barbara Allen. Here is Rebecca Kite.
1: I've always had a lot of interests. Yeah. And both of my parents were teachers. That's right. Which I think was very helpful Mm -hmm. because they could see what my, or especially my mother when I was younger, if I was interested in something, she would help me explore it or create situations or give permission so I could work on things or experience things. Uh, And we lived in college towns because my father was a college professor right um some of got to do a lot of enrichment kinds of activities that were fairly basic kinds of things but you know my mother played piano so we had a piano in the home uh, after I was about 5 years old that's when we got the piano she didn't uh, she didn't have one for a while mm-hmm. even though she uh wished she had one so um uh, we got the piano and uh, of course, I wanted to play with it, and and uh, did a few some piano lessons with her. Maybe halfway through book one of, Tom John Thompson, beginning hmm. or or the the first book for young children, or something like that. But uh, we didn't do lessons in a real rigid way. It was more exploring. I got to do a couple years later a summer photography class, and this I was like seven years old. My brother and I did it. He was three years older. We lived in Commerce, Texas, which is kind of amazing.
0: Oh, I forgot. You were all the way down there.
1: Yeah. And uh, it, the class was just taking uh, translucent and opaque and solid objects into the photography studio or the dark room at the college and uh, using the enlarger and putting, putting stuff on the photographic paper and you know making designs or your hand or something and then watching it you know and this is how we did photography back in those days we had three water acid or or develop and bath and Mm -hmm. wash and stuff like and fix and wash (laughs) so you could put the paper the light sensitive paper and the, the object over that and the enlarger shown the light through it to expose it and then you'd put the paper in the water and watch the image come up so it was really fun to watch that come up and then you put in the fixes when it got as vivid as you wanted it and then you rinsed it off and then you let it dry and voila you've got a photograph a right. black and white photograph and so that was pretty exciting so i got you know i did a lot of things like that like activities kits sure. those kinds of things and when i when i would and also i learned how to, to we did cooking and sewing my mother back in those days Mom sewed your clothes, made your clothes, yep. um, and you did baking at home. You didn't go buy cookies at the store. You baked cookies, you baked mm-hmm. cakes uh, from scratch using a mix was kind of like, they, they were pretty new in the 60s, actually, <laughs> right? so uh, maybe for cakes, they got to be popular, but for cookies, we always did those from scratch. Which is also, baking and cooking is a lot like, you know, it's a process, like, in you know, making the photographs. You yeah. do step one, two, three, four, and you get the photograph at the end. And baking, you do step one, two, three, four with the right ingredients, and you get the cookies uh-huh. at the end. And so for music, you just, like, figure out how to do one, two, three, and four to get the sound and work with it. And then you've got some music. So it just seemed like another Huh. You know, that's my approach is kind of similar and, yeah. and just try stuff out and see what works and look for um, look for things that seem like fun. And when I was nine and we had moved to Nebraska, uh, which is where I pretty much really consider that's where I grew up because I was there from fourth grade through high school. I walked by to go to my uh, the elementary school. I walked by the music building every day and I would hear people. Uh, singing the, you know, when the windows were open, when the weather was nice, uh, singers singing exercises and string players playing things. And, and I thought the violin sounded pretty interesting, so I decided I wanted to play the violin. And my parents said, okay, and uh-huh. bought me a cheapy st- student violin. Uh, and I uh, started taking violin lessons with the college violin professor. And that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it. And you know, following the instructions and yeah. doing step one, two, and three, and then I could play my tune and and um, enjoyed that. Um, and I did that all the way through high school. Uh, took lessons and played some, practiced more sometimes, less other times. But I could by the time to- by that time I could read music, you know, read treble clef and a little bit of bass clef, so I could read music and rhythms were, you know, when you're in the fourth grade. On piano, maybe maybe even some sixteenth notes and quarter notes and eighth notes, nothing real complicated. And had listened to a lot of music. And when it came to uh, fifth grade band, where we started beginning band, uh, I wanted to play in the band, and I, mm-hmm. it wasn't I wasn't going to stop playing the violin or right. even playing around on the piano or those other things, but I wanted to play in the band, and I really liked the sound of the French horn, and I really liked the trumpet pretty well, but I really liked the sound of the French horn. So we all got together, and all the fifth graders got together, all like eight of us, (laughs) or 10 of us, (laughs) uh, maybe 15 of us, uh, got together, and the band director went down the line, and we lined up in alphabetical order. That's what you did back in those days. I don't know if they still do that with (laughs) kids or not. But we were gonna select the instruments to play because yeah. the school, we didn't have rental instruments. The school had a set of instruments for the band, enough for a band, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And then the kids just, you know, there wasn't a lot of choice about what you played. But, but um, Alan Adams mm-hmm. got his trumpet and Mike Adams wanted to play drums, so he got drums. And um, Rhonda Collins, Got what she wanted to play, and my name started with K, which All is right. in the middle of the alphabet. And by the time they got to to me, the French horn was gone because oh, yeah. there was only there was only the one or two horns. And anyway, they were ca- they were taken. And so the band director, of course, who you know knew my parents, and he knew I was had played the violin. Sure, Because <laughs> yep. it's a really really small place. Um, he said, well, why don't you play the drums? And I said, okay, that sounds like fun. So for me, it was just uh, it was just another interesting, fun thing to do. Amazing. So I was just, and so I, uh, and I could already re- read music, so I was never in, like, a real beginning band where people are just playing, like, whole notes on yeah. the instrument uh-huh. and trying to figure out how to put their horn together. Right. My first beginning band experience was playing... I, You know, we it was a small school, so I guess the middle school band probably the all the way up through eighth grade playing a um, short, really short arrangement of theme from uh, Great Gate of Kiev with a cymbal part. And there was a they gave me the cymbal part, and it was those you know like twelve inch, really heavy clunky symbols with wooden <laughs> handles on it because I was a little kid, right? In yep, yep. <laughs> the fifth grade. And so I got to do, da, crash, da, crash, da, 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 crash. And it was great. So I love that. So I was really, really hooked. It was really fun. Um, but I was never really in the, like, a, I was never in, in a group where people couldn't play at least at that level. Sure. I wasn't really right. in the beginning band because I could already... I could read that right away because right. it was, you know, half notes. Yes. And I didn't really have a percussion teacher because the band director was a saxophone player. Uh, he did beginning lessons. I used the Haskell Hard Book 1. In the Haskell Hard Book 2, there are a lot of instructions. Like he tells you, he teaches you how to, do a, how to bounce a snare drum stick to yep. do a double-stroke roll. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wanted to be able to do that because I didn't really know what it was my band director had asked me to demonstrate closing a double-stroke roll and closing and opening it for his um, daughter, uh-huh. who was a college uh, music ed major. She was, a, I think she was a violinist. Anyway, that was a percussion methods class, and there was only you know one student in it. And he, he asked me to play, and I said, well, I don't know what that is, to open and close the roll. And he said, well, just start out slow and then go fast and then go slow. And so I did that because we had been doing buzz rolls. Sure, sure, um, sure. So I did that. I think I was in probably in the seventh grade when that happened. I mean, I was like clueless, really, about what it was he was asking me to do.
0: There wasn't YouTube at the time for you to see other drummers. Well, there wasn't anything.
1: <laughs> there was there was no other additional information yeah. and no other drummers that could do that. Yeah, because huh. if if there had been a college student percussionist, he wouldn't have asked me to do it. Right. So, I was I when I found that in the Haskell Hart book. I found, I realized that this was was later maybe the next year okay. I realized this is this is what he he's talking about bouncing the stick
2: uh-huh.
1: and somehow I put it together because it talks about the role in the Haskell hardbook and this is how you play a role it's right. a, and it's a double stroke role and so I one afternoon just read through the instructions uh, and I had a little one of those wooden angular uh practice pads and it had a calfskin head on it with some padding under it, it was red and the head was creamy color it was it was really old school um of course this was with traditional grip and i just read the instructions and tried to do what was written what haskell wrote is in the book and i spent about 30 minutes on it or 40 minutes on it and and you know like where you put your finger how your thumb a certain way and all that kind of stuff and and I worked on it, and finally it got the stick to bounce kind of by itself got got it to work, and it was yeah. bouncing and It was really exciting to uh. have that moment where the stick is you, you stick is bouncing in your hand. I think probably every drummer feels like happy when that happens when you've got the you're moving your hand once and the stick is hitting twice because yeah. it's bouncing. This is really a nice thing, so I had a few things wrong with my grip, you know that needed to be improved which you know later on I did get fixed when I had a teacher but uh, pretty much so I taught myself how to do the double stroke roll and then the band director bought that Frank Arsenal album mm-hmm. of the 26 rudiments and I heard, could hear that and it, they played it in the band room and I heard that and then I knew what it should sound like so then I practiced trying to you know do what I heard on the album you know I don't know how close I was to it of course but I was trying to emulate that so that's how I learned to open and close rudiments was from that Frank Arsenal album and I didn't do all 26 I mean I just did a few because nobody was asking me to play all of them and I bought the the N.A.R.D. book Mm -hmm. um, with I don't know it was 150 solos or something like that anyway so I started playing rudimental solos and but that was my approach to all of these challenges it's like find something that something that i couldn't do that i had realized was out there yeah uh that i could learn about and then figure out how to do it and i enjoyed those kinds of challenges and there's just something about my psychology or whatever that i like doing that and i've you know continued to do that so when when i first the marimba was just, when when I got to college and there was a marimba there, I mean, I'd seen a marimba once, uh, and, of course, I think we probably, well, I'm not sure if we had a xylophone in my band or not, really, to tell you the truth.
0: This was at your first college? You at,
1: in high school. In high, oh, school, high school, I'm not sure Sorry. that we had a xylophone. Okay. The college, the first college bought a xylophone when I was there, and there was a marimba there. Probably someone had donated. Mm-hmm. It was like an older Deegan marimba.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, because I could play the piano and I had taken lessons from the piano teacher at the school when I was in high school, I won't claim to say I, I don't play the piano very well, but I kind of use it as a tool and kind of hack at it, but I can read music. I yeah. know where I'm supposed to put my finger. <laughs> when I found out the marimba at the school, you know, I just, I could play it and read the music right away because it's just reading. It's like reading piano music. Right. Uh, so it's very, very easy and so I learned, I was very interested in that, and I was interested in multiple percussion because I'd seen a, a score to, I think, L'Histoire du Monde, the, the History of the World, uh, Stravinsky. The, and, and I'd seen a score in the music library where my work-study job was, and it had this percussion part with all these, like, five lines or something for percussion, and each instrument's on a different line. And I had no idea what that meant or how to do that. Sure. And then I found at the music store an Al Payson percussion, multiple percussion, little multiple percussion solo. I think it was like the Twittering machine or (laughs) something published by back in the 60s. And so I figured out how to set that up, set up tom-toms and stuff on chairs because we didn't really have, we had, there was a drum set, you know. Perfect. And, um, so I did a multiple percussion solo and I did a marimba solo with a friend of mine who played piano. I think it was, I think I did, it was either Peter's Sonata Allegro or the Tanner Sonata. I forget which one it was. It was one of those pieces. And just an aside for the marching thing, uh, or rudimental stuff, my percussion teacher never asked me what I had done. (laughs) He never auditioned me. He never asked me to play for him. And, uh, at the first lesson, he had me get the Wilcoxon All-American Drummer, uh-huh. and we started going through it doing rudiments. And he helped me with my thumb on my left sure. hand and my grip, but that took like one week. And so he never knew that I played these other things on student recitals and stuff because he never uh-huh. – I didn't work on any of the music with him because I was not a outspoken student. You know, Whatever they the teacher said to me to do, I just did it and didn't sure. really – question them or anything. Yeah. And so I practiced my rudimental atude for like ten minutes because I was really not interested in it. Yeah. And then when he came we played that and we keep he just we went through the book, you know, just not even the whole thing. But that's all we did in my percussion lessons. And all the other stuff I did on my own because it was interesting and fun to me and I wanted to explore it.
0: At that point you're you're an undergrad in college.
1: I'm a freshman year of college at the wrong school. <laughs>
0: Did you know it was... So you're talking about wrong school. My question is, did you already have a, an idea of what you wanted your future to be? Or at that moment, were you just in the moment?
1: Well, I I had gone to a music and art camp when I was in high school. Oh, right. Uh, between my junior and senior year. And I had done a lot of playing in high school. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to solo and ensemble contest every year mm-hmm. and played a solo that I taught myself. And... Got comments from judges like, good, excellent, good, excellent, good, excellent, like, like nothing kinds of comments. Right. Very. No help. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then when I went to the music and art camp, I had a real percussion teacher for six weeks. Uh-huh. His name was George Boberg. And he was, it was at Kansas University, it was at Midwestern Music and Art Camp. Mm-hmm. Some people will know that. Uh, Norm Weinberg went there, Johnny Lane huh. went there, <laughs> and a lot of other. Uh, great players so I had I'm gonna getting off track for what I was gonna oh so I I had at that point you know I was my school was really small where I grew up yeah and like my eighth grade there were like 12 kids in my class and so uh it was really really tiny and we didn't you know the band was good but it wasn't big and we could there was a lot of literature we couldn't play because Mm -hmm. we didn't have the instrumentation for it and at music and art camp, I was in an orchestra and I was in this uh the an orchestra and a band. Oh. And we did a concert each week with each group, and also I was in percussion ensemble. Wow. So in six weeks I did like 15 concerts, which wow. is more than I'd ever heard in my entire life. Right. And it was really fun. And of course, they do things like, you know, 1812 overture and big great percussion. Awesome. Beat, awesome stuff. And yeah. Percy Granger, and, and um, with really uh, great guest conductors, Arnold Gabriel, the Air Force uh-huh. uh, legendary Air Force conductor, was, of course, early in his career at that point. He conducted for one week, and, uh, and I had uh, real percussion lessons. Sure. So I had timpani, mostly timpani lessons there. And anyway, I decided at that camp that I just loved this and wanted to be a musician. That makes sense. I didn't want to go into science or right. other stuff. I wanted to be a musician. So I knew when I went to college, I wanted to study music.
0: So then... And the,
1: yeah, so the, the the percussion teacher... I was in Nebraska, so my brother had gone, who was older, had gone to the University of Nebraska, so I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go to the same place. My brother did. This is how my mind was working. And so I thought I'd go to Nebraska Wesleyan because the percussion teacher was the same for both schools. Ah. He was an adjunct, right. of course. And so... I didn't think it would make any difference. It probably didn't make any difference. But when I got to uh, Wesleyan at the beginning of the year, they didn't really have auditions to get in music there. So they had a, little, like, a short interview with you at the beginning of the school year. And so I met with the, like the department chair and the orchestra conductor and maybe a theory teacher or something. And they, you know, just to get to know me and ask about my background. And so I told them sure something about my background and they asked me if i had i was listed as a percussion major and they asked me if i played any other instruments and i said well i had a few piano lessons in high school but i'm not you know and and um i played guitar i had bought a guitar when i was in middle school and learned how to play like campfire songs and stuff like that and a few surfer tunes (laughs) and i also i played the violin since i was nine right and as soon as I said that, their eyes got big, yeah. and they like sat up, and they were like, "Oh, so um, we'd like to put you into orchestra. How would you like that?" And I said, "Okay." Yeah. I said, "But I don't. I didn't bring my violin with me to to school. I mean, it was only sixty miles from home. But back then, you went to college, and they came back Thanksgiving to pick you up. You didn't go back and forth all the time. There were no helicopter parents." <laughs> And you didn't really call much, and you didn't need much money because there wasn't any place to go yeah, to right. spend it, really. So anyway, um, they said, we'll loan you one from the school. Oh. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And they they gave me a violin and to use, and it sounded a whole lot better than my student violin. And I really liked it because it sounded so much better. And they said we're also going to sign you up for violin lessons. And I said, okay, <laughs> because I, my attitude at college was, okay, I'm going to be a musician, so that's what I care about. Is If it's music, if it's a music class, I'm on it. The other classes, uh, right. you know, I have to take those. Don't care about them, but I have to, like, get an A or a B in those classes. But, yeah, yeah. if it's music, I'm there. So, I thought its it was fun, and i i so I took violin lessons the whole semester, and I was in the orchestra for the fall semester, and I realized in the orchestra when I heard the percussion because there were other percussionists there, okay um when I heard them playing that I really wanted to be in the percussion section, uh, I didn't really want to be in the second violin section there it is, yeah and I realized I was in the wrong... So I realized pretty quickly I was at the wrong school because there wasn't really a percussion department. Yep. And the best thing that my teacher there did, my percussion teacher did at Wesleyan, was tell me to join the Percussive Arts Society. Wow. So I've been a member of the Percussion of Percussive Arts Society since the fall of 1969. How about that? Yeah, so it's like 50 years. <laughs> kind of amazing little pamphlet the percussive notes was this little pamphlet and it came I think four times a year but I found out that there are other schools that had percussion departments right and they were doing programs and they had percussion ensemble concerts and instead of just having one percussion major who was playing violin in the orchestra (laughs) they had lots of percussion majors and so I wanted to go to a different school and I ended up going to transferring but I knew by Thanksgiving I was at the wrong place. Sure. So uh, my father and the band director at Peru, Peru State College, mm-hmm. which is Peru, Nebraska, is the name of the town I lived in. The band director's doctorate was from UMKC Conservatory of Music. Right. Yeah. Um, and and of course they had a really excellent percussion program headed up by Charmaine Asher Wiley, and so. Um, you know, I wanted to go to one of the schools I'd read about in Percussive Notes because Absolutely. I knew for sure that they existed, right? And I had yeah. no idea what this other school was. But my father, being smarter than I was and more knowledgeable, <laughs> thought that Kansas City would be the good place. So we went down and looked at the school, and I auditioned for Charmaine, and she got very excited when I played Drum Corps and Parade for her, and she asked me how long I had practiced it been how long when I started practicing and I said well last week (laughs) and um she got very excited about that I didn't really think anything of it at the time that that might be unusual and you know I don't know maybe I, I probably made some mistakes in it but I could play through it and make it have a tempo and beat and you know so anyway um I ended up going there and really got a lot out of it and uh, really enjoyed having a real percussion department. And that's where I really, in terms of percussion lessons, that's where I really had some really great instruction from her. And, you know, that's, that's where I really got started solidly on my path as a percussionist. Yeah. Um, but really, I had done so much myself before then. It was it, things like practicing, you already I love practicing, yeah. so it was more like I, I put, I would sign up for, uh, at at that school, you, you had to sign up for, to reserve the practice times, mm-hmm. and um, people, most of the people went home at the end of the day, because it's kind of an urban school, okay. and a lot of students don't live on campus, so, and we got allotted maybe two hours a day for practicing, so I signed up for practice time in the middle of the day, when there were going to be a lot of people there, so mm-hmm. I knew I'd get those two hours. And at seven o'clock after dinner, the practice rooms were empty, so I could practice for a couple hours during the day, like hmm. in between classes or whatever, uh-huh. and then have the whole evening there. Ah. So it was great. I loved it.
0: Were you intimidated because you you had been, as we call it, a a big fish in a little pond before, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you were at this new place. I don't think
1: no. I didn't. I never thought of myself as yeah. I was like the only fish in the pond before. (laughs) Sure, okay. I mean, it was... Good point. (laughs) Yeah, it was like I was the only percussion major. I was the only person doing it.
0: So maybe it was just exciting
1: to you or... or Well, I didn't care what other people were doing. I just didn't care. I wasn't looking at what what are the people around me doing and how do I fit. I was just like, I want to learn this. I want to figure this out. I want to do this. And if it was music and, you know anything that was musical that we asked me to do, I wanted to, to do it because at that point that was my, you know, I was, I, I, I was open to everything. Yeah.
0: That's healthy. <laughs>
1: yeah. I was just open to everything. I wasn't trying to be anything. I was just like, I wanted to learn as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, nice. so it was fun. It was okay. like being in a can every, you know, it was like being in a candy store. Yeah.
0: Right. And so
1: I liked, I liked all of it. I maybe didn't like every single person. Maybe I didn't like every single assignment. But, um, no, I practiced – gosh, I probably practiced at least four hours a day because I, I made most almost all of those daytime hours because I didn't have – there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. I didn't want to go hang out with my friends on the grass and watch cars go by or, <laughs> you know, go do other things that college students spend a lot of time doing. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to practice Yeah. because I, that's just always been – being in the music and hearing the music and doing, doing that has just always been really compelling for me. Mm -hmm.
0: So then you went to graduate school, right? You went to Indiana. Yeah. And by that time, did you have a specific goal in mind or were you still thinking, I just want a life in music?
1: No, I, when I went to grad school, I had a specific goal. After undergraduate, uh, some friends of mine and I put together a band, like a jazz rock band. I That's played drum right. set for two years, made a living playing drum set. You <laughs> could do it back then. Yeah. We did not ever pay a club to let us perform at the club, <laughs> they paid us to come and perform in the club. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I did that for a couple of years and. I got tired of the working conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got tired of... It's hard to imagine today what working in a smoke-filled bar was like mm-hmm. where you can barely see the other side of the room. There's so much cigarette smoke in it. Uh, but that's what most clubs were like. Shoot. And also, there are usually lots of drunk people. And, you know, after a while, you just get, just get tired of those kind of working conditions. Not every gig was like that, but enough of them were. Yeah. And... Um, I really was more interested in classical music, and I really wanted to play timpani. I had gotten very interested in timpani playing uh, at the music and art camp, and I had done a lot of timpani playing in college. I was not like a mallet specialist in college at undergrad. There were several people there who were much more dedicated and interested in that than I was. I was primarily a snare drummer and timpani player. Okay. And I played timpani in the Kansas City Civic Orchestra. I played timpani in the... Um, Parkland Symphony and I had started studying with Cloyd Duff that's right before I, I graduate school uh, one of my friends um, uh, went to Cleveland Institute had from Nebraska had gone to Cleveland Institute so I had a connection there that I could so make it uh, you know sleep on the floor in his uh, apartment so when I went to graduate school, I wanted to go for orchestra and perc- timpani and orchestral percussion training and try and get an orchestra job. So that was my goal for graduate right. school. That's right. So things, you know, kind of worked out for that. I did a lot of timpani work. I learned a lot about timpani, and I was in um, some like regional orchestras. And uh, as I wasn't getting like advancing through those, uh, I got more and more interested in marimba playing. And I had heard uh, some soloists, marimba soloists, I heard Karen, er- Karen Irvin do a concert uh, in 1975 when I was in grad school. And it was the first time I heard time for marimba. Uh-huh. And she played a couple other pieces. And there weren't really percussion soloists out there right? anywhere at that time. Except Karen, Karen was the, really the first one, hmm. and then I had done. I had taught in Evansville for a year and played timpani in the orchestra down there, Evansville, Indiana, mm-hmm. and uh, I, so I learned some uh, solo marimba literature, and I had I had a marimba. I had a Degan Model Forty that, um, I, you know, mostly I I liked playing through the violin sonatas and partitas. I played a lot of violin music and some guitar music. Because I love classical guitar yeah, repertoire, absolutely. But you know, it's this kind of a small-sounding instrument, pretty yeah. and nice and rich, but very small sound. So I started playing recitals, and I played mixed percussion recitals, like timpani and maybe a piece like the Warren Benson dances for snare drum, Three, yep, and some marimba pieces. So I did those those sorts of things, and then was really, I was, you know, I was. It wasn't super compelling, but I was starting to do that. And then I heard Keiko Abe in 1981 at a PAS convention and heard it's a much bigger, different instrument and different way of playing, and had experience of um, improvising with her. Uh, Indian. I lived in Bloomington at the time and she, the convention was in Indianapolis. And after the convention, she came down to Bloomington for the afternoon and evening on, on Monday and did a presentation for the composition department. And when I met her in Indianapolis, which I was fortunate to get to do through a mutual friend, I asked her about a lesson. And so when she came down to Bloomington, she asked me if I would play time for marimba with her for the demonstration for the composers. Sure. Because she did a uh, she was very involved very involved in um, improvisation for classical music,
2: mm-hmm.
1: improvising on the composition itself that you're playing. And so uh, we the format for the clinic was going to be, I played Time for Marimba kind of straight. Yeah. Which was the only way I could play it. (laughs) And then she would do like uh, an improvised version of it. (laughs) And we would improvise together. Then we would would do it together. So I played it straight and she would improvise with me. Mm -hmm. And so we rehearsed this. And (laughs) at the rehearsal... Of course, I had heard her play on stage on the Friday before, and she was just like really, really amazing. Wow. And so, when we did the rehearsal, she improvised with me while I played it. And she's always does this with her teaching. And as uh, she didn't have to have any English, which she didn't speak English really then. Just playing with her, I could. She kind of pulls you along. Her musical energy pulls you along. And just playing with her completely changed my idea of dynamic range and uh, energy and musical expression sure. it was almost like instant. It's like you know you're inside and it's gray and gloomy inside and all of a sudden you just walk out into a whole like springtime and there's color and stuff everywhere and you're like, well, wow, where did that come from? But yeah, isn't it great? It's amazing yeah. And you can't really go back because once you experience that, it's that's your new standard yeah forever um, after that. So it really made a huge impact on my playing. And later on, I studied with her in Utrecht in uh, about, I guess it was about four years, three or four years later. She did, did an international marimba uh, class there uh, in 1985. But in 1984, she was played at PASIC again in Ann Arbor. And the instrument she had played on in Indianapolis was an experimental instrument. It was a low F marimba Oh. That had the last three, I guess, or five C, C up to E bars on a roll up extension that rolled up to the end of the frame. I remember those. So it had been really incredible to hear a five octave instrument. But then in, and it was a fairly bright, the Indianapolis instrument was fairly bright, and she did a lot of really high energy contemporary Japanese music. Mm-hmm. She didn't, she did just one or two of her arrangements, like as an encore or something. And in, Ann Arbor, it was the premiere of the YM6000, the five-octave instrument was had was finalized. It was all one frame. And that instrument was premiered in the spring in Amsterdam with a piece written, the first piece written specifically for the five-octave marimba, which was marimba spiritual. Yeah, And she played that, and I, I don't remember what else was on the program, but they played that in Ann Arbor at the... I think it's Hill Auditorium, and the sound of the marimba was just incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had to you have to be, I think, of an age where you'd never heard that sound before, right? To really appreciate how different it is from what was before, right? From what uh, marimbas were like, like the Musser two hundred and fifty in the seventies, and so in nineteen eighty four, everything changed for the marimba with that instrument but for some of
0: us not till later I mean I I'm old enough to I still was in a Musser a smaller Musser world for a while and oh sure I think I heard that uh the first time I heard that was in 93 when
1: Keiko played in Columbus that was an incredible that's the most incredible concert I think she ever played that I was know about that was an amazing it was concert
0: yeah I I'll never for, I'll never yep. forget it. And and like you said that sound and then okay this is a this is a different instrument. Yeah. So there
1: you were in 1984. I have to have one of these marimbas. <laughs> how am I going to get Right. How, how am gonna, I going to get this marimba? And um because I was looking for something after I had done that lesson in 81. Okay, right. I mean my marimba was just like, oh my god, this sounds bad. <laughs> It's just not, it's just not, it, it's it's just not adequate. Sure. And so it was hard to practice because it was like, really didn't like, you know, it, was, it just was not even good enough. I mean, it could do some things with it, but, you know, like you could play Conversation yeah. on it or one of those little, you know, five pieces after Paul Clay or, and I did those things. I did play some of that repertoire on concerts. I played in places like, the wine cellar and the art museum and, and those sorts of things. But I really wanted, I wanted the five octaves. And back then, along with, you know, Marimba spiritual, which of course was not published <laughs> at that point. I wanted to play the, be able to play the Bach cello suites at pitch. Right. Because I loved the Sonatas Art and Partitas, and I loved the cello suites. Yes. And that's, And I wanted to be able to play classical guitar music at pitch. Mm -hmm. So those were the main reasons I wanted the five octave, but it was such a compelling instrument and it came out in the fall of 84. And when I, the the study opportunity with her was coming up, it was in the spring of 85 and I'd already gotten information about that, which is a, that whole journey was kind of, it's a whole separate story, but, um, Well, I guess I should probably mention it now, but when uh, I heard the Marimba Spiritual in 84, in November, and the uh, Yamaha representative then was Jim Coffin, was his Uh name. Okay. He's a really, really wonderful man, really sweet person. And uh, he made an announcement either before or at the end of the concert, I don't remember exactly when, but he said... He announced the new instrument because this is the premiere of that instrument in the United States. Yeah, and he said, "We're just making a few of these next year. Next year, you know." And I thought, "How am I going to get one of those?" <laughs> and so, the concert ended. I ran up to the front of the auditorium to talk to him. Yeah, and and I went up to him. And I said, "Well, how can I how can I order one of these marimbas? What do I have to do to order this yeah. marimba?" And he said, well, just go talk to your Yamaha dealer. And I thought, of course, first I thought, well, that's not going to work. That's not how you get this. (laughs) Because I, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, everybody wants one of these because I want it. Everybody's going to, you know, of course, which isn't true, because I was probably the only super enthusiastic person there besides Keiko finally to have this thing finished. So I went home. And in February, I went in, and I was involved in a timpani building business then, and we had, we showed our timpani first at that conference also. So it was oh, a very big... I have the timeline wrong. So this t- the same, it was the same convention. How about that? 1984 was a real mm-hmm. uh, big year for us and for me. So anyway, um, I went to, you know, we didn't have any money because we were starting this business and, you know, we we're that's just what things are like when you when you're yeah. when you start stuff out and but we did have a banking relationship with the bank so anyway we i was trying to figure out how to how to get the instrument so my business partner said well wh- let's just order it and we'll figure out when it gets here we'll f- figure it out and it was eight thousand dollars back then okay how much it was and so and the cases were like 1500 or something and i wanted cases with it so i went to my yamaha dealer and it was actually this music store that i taught drum set lessons at okay so he knew me really well because i've been teaching there for quite a while and um so i went in his name was george holden the man who owned it and said you know i want to order one of these Mm marimbas." you know, what do I need to do to order it? Sure. And he looked at me and said, well, do you really want this thing? <laughs> and I said something like, I'll do anything to get this marimba. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, okay, I'll order it. Whoa. And so I didn't have to pay a deposit or anything. He ordered it, but it took a couple of back and forths and with Yamaha to convince them that this was like a real order. Or something and you know because they had seen the timpani business they knew my name from the timpani business okay so I think maybe they thought it was going to like copy it or something oh. I don't know which is a little kind of laughable if they <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to play marimba spiritual on it is what I wanted right. to do with it <laughs> um, anyway so finally they accepted the order uh-huh. and then I went to Utrecht to study with Keiko and You know it was one of those things and and i don't know your students for this experience i don't know that students would ever do something like this now because we didn't have mobile phones we didn't make international phone calls we didn't have instant communication we had snail mail and i had one snail mail letter with keiko from two years before telling me the name of the when the class was in general and in Utrecht and inviting me to it, saying that I could study with her there. Please come to this event. And here's the name of the chair of the music school. Contact him and find out more details. Okay. So I had one letter, and that was a couple of years, like two years before this event. Then I had contacted him, and it was, was probably nine months before the event. And he said, "We'd love to have you. I'll f- we'll find you a place to stay. So come, come see me. Come come see me when you get to Utrecht. Okay. <laughs> Here's my address, and it will be you know X dump number of you know. It wasn't European Union then, but it'll be it'll cost this much money. Oh, I'm glad he said that. Yeah. So it wasn't the European Union, and so I had two letters, and so." It's And the second one was from November, and the event was in April. And so as time got closer, we figured out, okay, I'm going to fly from Chicago. I got Iceland Air tickets because back then that was the cheapest way to travel. yep So I was going to fly from Bloomington to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Reykjavik, and then from Reykjavik to Luxembourg, which is where Iceland Air flew. And then I had to get on a train and go through several countries, uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, a little bit of Germany, then back into Belgium and then the Netherlands, it was, there were like four country crossings and then go to Utrecht and then find this person's house, go up and like knock on the door and hello, <laughs> say, hi, I'm here and hope it would work because this was really, and this was really super sketchy in yeah. my mind. And I had already lived, I had already lived in Central America and played in an orchestra and lived in another country. And I knew that things can seem sketchy and be fine. Sure. And things can seem sketchy and be really sketchy and maybe not work and just have to go with it. And so uh, I bought plane tickets. My friends helped me a little bit, got the tickets, got ready to go and thought, you know, well, what do I do if it's terrible i mean i didn't know if keiko would be there once or twice it was five weeks long is she there the last week the first week is she there every day is she there once a week what's you know i had no idea what to expect no idea what to expect i was hoping to at least get to spend have a few lessons with her and what if it i get there and it was canceled you know and nobody wrote to me (laughs) You know, I mean, you couldn't just look it up on Google and, or Facebook and see what other people are doing, right, you know, right. <laughs> and, uh, you just had no idea what was going, going to happen. So I just thought, okay, I talked about my friends, a way to think about this is if, if it's terrible, yeah, just, you know, go, go tour Europe for a little while, there you, go. you know, okay. just go do something else and, or change your flight and come back or, you know, but go, Cool.
0: Because the best marimbas in the world has said, come and study with me.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't I Why wouldn't you? But I had no idea what was going to happen when I went there. I mean, I didn't know if I was... Sure. I had no idea what was going to happen. Terrifying. I thought... I was hoping for the best. Yeah. But I was just like... It was... There was no information. I mean, there was those two letters over the span of like two years. So it was very sketchy. So... (laughs) so i fly there and my planes the planes flying over like the northwest territories and i see golden you know northern lights under the plane oh, and wow. i think it's all going to be okay oh wow. i know it's kind of silly but but it was like oh this is really kind of amazing yeah the whole thing is kind of amazing i can't believe i'm doing it and so um i left chicago i left bloomington at like eight or nine o'clock on saturday morning mm-hmm. And I got to Utrecht at about 7 or 8 o'clock on Sunday night. And I was traveling the entire time. So I got to those places. When I got to Luxembourg, every country stop, you had to sit in the train. You had to get your passport checked. And you had to get out of the train and walk about 30 feet across the border and get on a different train or sometimes the same train and then go to the next border crossing. And that took a lot. Of, that took about six six hours to do that. Oh. Those series of border crossings. Yeah. Yeah, I guess because of that because of the time my uh, flight came in and it was after dark when I got to Utrecht and I had the guy's address and I got a taxi went to his house he saw me driving up you know saw a taxi driving up so huh. he, he came out to the taxi that this is a dean of the conservatory he came yeah. out to the taxi and he he had and he gave the taxi driver the woman's he had found a you know, a rooming house, a, okay. a woman's house who let out rooms in her house for students and um, gave the taxi driver her address and called over and said I was on my way. <laughs> so taxi driver took me over there. She came out and helped me and showed me my room. And I had a little hot plate and a little yeah. refrigerator and and had a room. The, and the next morning she went with me on the bus to show me how to buy a ticket and which bus to get on and how to get off. And she took me into the building into the conservatory, and it was, I don't know, nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. And so I was in there with, I got there. So that all worked. It was kind of astonishing. Yeah. But it worked, and I was very happy about that. And um, so I got to the, the building and about 30 minutes early and was sitting around. We're all sitting in a circle. There are probably, I don't know, 10 students. Okay. And it turns out I am the only international student, the <laughs> other students are just students at this music conservatory in Utrecht. Okay, so we're sitting around a circle in the percussion, it's an older building, so there's like a large room where the percussion equipment was and where they had rehearsals and we had the class and stuff in there. And right on time, the door opens and the percussion teacher comes in and Keiko's with him. And she looks over, she sees me right away and she walks right over to me and says, Oh, I'm so happy to see you. You, you ordered my marimba. And I was, I was like stunned because the first thing in my mind was like, how did she know about this? And now of course I realized that the first thing that happened when my order hit the Japan desk was somebody called her and
0: <laughs> said, so "Do you know?" And this? said,
1: "And said, is it okay if we sell your model marimba to this person in the U.S.?" Uh, probably. So anyway, so yeah. she so, and of course the other students were probably like had no idea what was going on, mm-hmm. and I was very relieved. And it turned out that she was there almost every day. She did go. She went to London for a few days, and she went to someplace else for a few days, but. Uh, I spent almost every day with her. Uh, We ate lunch together. I mean, I was the only one who could understand her English. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) Because her English wasn't very good, and I could figure out from the context what she was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And the the Dutch people, they spoke English, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of Dutch English. Sure. And so I ended up being an interpreter between Japanese, i'll call it keiko's japanese english and dutch english mm-hmm. and kind of simplifying and making it connect yeah. so uh so i was it was really a lot of fun and uh she and i spent a lot of time together because it was uh, like an urban school and the students at five o'clock they all went home oh. and of course she was staying at a hotel just a few blocks away and often didn't have necessarily anything on her schedule, so we ate dinner together a lot. We ate lunch in the little cafeteria a lot because the students, other students, didn't come over talk with her. And mm-hmm. the only reason I was there was to study with her. Sure. So if I had a chance to sit next to her, I took it. Yeah. So I got to ask her thousands of questions because uh, I had lots of questions. I wanted to be a soloist, and we didn't have a marimba soloist. She's the in, in the U.S. She's the top marimba soloist, right? With experience performing concerts, with experience performing with orchestra, with experience doing recitals. Lots of lots of experience. Violinists and pianists have lots of. There are a lot more people with that kind of experience. They can go study with to yep. find out how to prepare, what kind of pieces to program. Right. You know this, and uh, we talked about the sound, of the instrument, the acoustics of it. The uh, brightness or darkness of sound, and and there were a lot of, there was a Cori, Corogi, um, a, maybe a Bergero, a couple of different, Yamaha had sent several different, uh, they had sent us the 6,000 plus a low A marimba that was really, really beautiful instrument. It was kind of a, proto, some prototype instruments to help everybody have students, like everybody have instruments to practice on at this. Wonderful so each one of them had their own kind of characteristic sound so we could i could talk about that with keiko uh. and what i was hearing and and uh-huh. and what she heard with them and and on and on and on uh so it was a really really transformative experience for me to and we plus we became friends yeah because um, of spending all the time together so when i got the six thousand, when i got mine which was the next christmas uh-huh. I got it at my house on Christmas Eve of two thousand and five. It took about almost a year from when I ordered it. It took like ten months mm. from when I'd ordered it, and it's serial number ten. Oh my gosh. So when I got it, you know, I took it out of the crates and put it together, it was like of of all the the things I'd done uh, growing up, like, mm-hmm. oh, I went and figure this out how to play this, figure mm-hmm. out how to play how to bounce my sticks, figure out how to make the cake and uh, some of the other things, you know, like figure the science kit out or something like that. This is like, Oh my God, this has got, it's, it's so different. It's so responsive. You just touch the bar and it rings, you know, the marim, the instrument. And yeah. it's, it's there in my living room yeah. right now. It's so responsive. And the sound is so clear. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful sound. It really focused, clear pitch, mm-hmm. not, kind of a thunky or woodblocky kind of clunky clack sound right. or anything like that and the mallets weren't right my mallets weren't right for it the handles weren't long enough because the bars are so long That's right. it's so big it's big <laughs> it's got such a different sound this it was like this is going to be a giant project to figure out how to play this i don't mean was fine. that exciting oh yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah it was very exciting i don't mean like can I read the music and play the notes? That's not what I'm talking about. How can I make really, really great music on this instrument? Uh, How can I get the most out of this instrument for the music that I want to play? And so that's what, so that was really compelling and exciting. And I spent a lot of time, you know, that's, I spent, I don't know, seems like four or five years really exploring and trying out different things and you know i made all my mallets and you know yeah did different kinds of music because different kinds of music you do play differently like if you're playing time for marimba the musical demands are very different from playing Memories of the Seashore, sure, and the musical demands for playing the Bach Chaconne are very different from Memories of the Seashore. You're not trying to make just a big, beautiful sound from the instrument. You're trying to make, use a controlled sound and phrasing, and color, mm-hmm. and pacing, and uh, timing to shape what Bach wrote right. right? to convey some musical meaning through that. Right. So um, that was the approach I took in the the literature I chose and i spent about three years you know not every day not every week but i spent about three years on the Chicone figuring out how like what kind of stroke to hit the bar with how to strike the bar so i'm getting the kind of sound i want that's going to work musically in this phrase or that phrase you know for example using the play different playing areas of the bar so you've got you know everybody's got at least three playing areas even on a you know kind of inferior marimba you've got you can play in the center and halfway and at the halfway between the center and the node and at the node so you've got at least three and i would say you know mine's more like five zones playing zones or sound points if you're thinking like a string player uh, between the bridge and the figureboard right because you get a different kind of quality of sound and it's it's not like the violin but you do get a different kind of quality of sound and you can exploit that for musical reasons and how to connect how to make how to make note grouping sound connected how to how to make notes uh separated sound separated those kinds of things mm-hmm. and then also working with a different range of the instrument because it, it's almost like you've got we've got three different instruments the bottom two two and a half octaves has very different kind of response than the center of the keyboard does right the center maybe two two and a half three octaves and you've got the very top part which is a lot kind of xylophonistic yep and how do you incorporate that for example a piece like dream of the cherry blossoms you're working at the two extremes with that fairly frequently as an example and how are you gonna how are you gonna manage that when you can't change mallets because you have to maybe hit the bars differently you know if you've got to use a harder mallet down on the low end and make it sound okay you know and voiced mallets. And so there's just a huge number of things to figure out with that. And you got to dive into it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and I'm still exploring it. Sure. Uh, still working with that. So, yeah, so that instrument and, you know, Keiko's idea when she worked with Yamaha on that was, was to create an instrument that was similar to a piano in the fact that you've got these different qualities and characters of the range of the instrument right and you can play a lot of different styles in a really wide dynamic range and you've got a really strong bass and you've got a really bright speaking treble part at the the highest part Mm -hmm. and you've got this beautiful (laughs) the middle part you know so we have that that 6000 is kind of the it's like the physical embodiment of her musical aesthetic yeah in terms of what an instrument should be uh, what a marimba should be and
0: that's actually very similar to what you did with timpani
1: yes it's very interesting because the timpani sound and that marimba sound are really really have a lot of similarities uh-huh. yeah in terms of the focus and i'm not sure how that happened but it did because <laughs> we came the the things that affected the timpani sound happened before i got the this that's true
0: right so uh do you mind backing up and and talking about was it for you a matter of solving problems or or doing it right? You created you have patents on drums. You created new ways of drum physical parts actually working together. Did that start because you wanted to fix something or seek, <laughs> were you
1: seeking? Well, I mean the 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 answer I'm going to give is kind of like it only makes sense when you're in your thirties that you would do something like this (laughs) because you you lost your, you haven't figured out that you've lost your mind yet. (laughs) Um, that's so great. Well, one of the things, you know, I wanted to, I was still primarily a timpani player. Yeah. So the, the timpani, the the seeds of the timpani business were like in 1980 or so. Okay. 81 we incorporated the business in 1982 but we had thought about it before right i had one of the jobs i had was taking care of instruments at the like percussion technician at indiana university taking care of the timpani and i've always been fairly mechanically inclined i like to to make things i liked models i had i made model rockets and i like to take things apart and put things together and uh, so I'd always been fairly mechanically inclined since I was a child, and that kind of combined with with not having instruments to practice on, mm-hmm. and access to instruments to practice on. And I was working at I worked at IU for a short while, taking care of the instruments, and I had done a lot of maintenance on the timpani. Of course, you know, new timpani heads on like Ludwig style drums. We had a lot of those, and we had. Uh, Goodman Chain Drums and we had hand tune timpani. Right. And we had two sets of Günter Ringer timpani. Uh, one that stayed in the Performing Arts Center building and one that stayed in the like percussion office kind of for special use just for a few special students who got to use those professional drums and I was not one of those special students who got to do that. And but when I uh, when I took care of the instruments, I wasn't a student anymore. Uh-huh. It was a few years after that, and I did over—I overhauled the. Synth- well, maybe overhaul is not the. I took apart and lubricated sure. all the part, cleaned and lubricated all of the moving parts mm-hmm. on the Ringer timpani. And when I did that, I found I there were already flaws that I knew about. I knew that the that, that when you move the pedal up and down a lot uh, frequently. Yeah, it would pull, I knew the heads pulled to the side, pulled one side off one side. And, you know, there are some things that were kind of, um, not easy to, to use, or I thought maybe, you know, I thought were kind of awkward. I didn't really like having to lift your whole leg up to go to a lower pitch on the drum. Right. That seemed like you're, you know, you're fighting gravity to do that. You know, it, it seemed kind of awkward to me. I preferred, uh, uh, a different motion. Uh, we didn't have Goodman or Hinger timpani. Okay. We did, had ankle motion, we, but we had the ringer, the professional drums that IU had all had that leg, oh, yeah. that leg motion. And when I took the, when I took it apart and started looking at it closely, um, I noticed that, and, and someone was helping me when you push the pedal up and down and went through the whole range, they have a really big range, like over an octave on each drum, which is, is really nice awesome. Thing. And, um, When you did that, the support struts on the, on the 30 inch drum or the 30, it's 31 on the the biggest drum, you could see the support struts bending up at the top when you got to the higher pitches. Oh. So you just with, with your eye, just sitting there, look at it, you saw it move. And I thought I'd never looked at it that closely before uh, this one day that was really inspecting them. And I thought that's kind of scary, (laughs) Because uh, I know there's a whole lot of tension on that head. Right. So the frame is moving, and attached to the frame is the support ring. That means the support ring's moving a little bit. Right. And the bowl is resting on the support ring. So hmm, I wonder what's going on in there. And in fact, that specific issue is like really pronounced on a lot of the older Goodman uh, timpani. Yeah. So much so that on some of those drums, when you push the pedal down, the feet kind of splay out because the whole frame is flexing. Uh, anyway, back to the ringer timpani. Um, so when I took the when I took the rocker arm off and took the uh, unhooked all the tuning lugs, mm-hmm. was going to take took the bowl out, was going to take the spider out to to lubricate that center post that that pulls the spider down. I unhooked it and then it was like moving around back and forth and I thought, oh my God, I've broken this drum. What right. did I yeah. do? Yep. know <laughs> no, because I you know, there's no instruction manual for this. I so I I moved it back and forth and thought, wow. And so I thought about it for a while. I thought, well, I didn't break this. That's just how this is made. And actually, you know, if you the rocker arm moves in an arcing motion Mm -hmm. which is part of a circle if you cut cut a piece out of a circle that's an arc a curve the rock because it's the rocker arm is attached to a rod that rotates that's a circular motion and so the rocker arm is the part of the timpani that goes between the what you push down with the pedal and what pulls down the spider that part's called the rocker arm So one side, you pushes down. When you push the pedal down, it rotates. And then the head's pulled tighter. But that wasn't pulling the head down in a straight line. Right. It wasn't pulling it down evenly on both sides. Yeah. It was pulling it down more on one side, which I already knew about, because you could see it, the head, no matter what you did with that head, after you played it for a while, it just pulled over about a half inch Mm -hmm. or so to the side. And then I realized... It moved, the, this, this post in the middle moves so much because that's how much space there is between, that's how much bigger the hole is than the post. Yes. So that's called the amount of play. And it's almost, it was like three quarters of an inch when I measured it. Huh. This space, so each side had, that's like six eighths. Each side had like three eighths of an inch clearance on right. each side of the post. Mm-hmm. And that's why it has such a big range because it doesn't, it's, It's Ah. moving in an arcing motion, but it's not getting stuck inside the uh, cylindrical space that it's moving in. It's just kind of free-floating in there. Right. In an arcing motion. Which makes sense. Right? And I thought, no wonder it pulls off to the side. Because it has to be pulling straight up and down. (laughs) If it's going to be... Because it's only going to be in tune really in tune at one pitch. Yep. Yes. And which the logic of that that leads you to believe or leads me to believe that the reason we only have a couple of pitches on, that we want to put on those drums is because when we move the pedal it's detuning itself. Now most timpani players don't believe that because they just are happy with the way things are. But that's what that's really what's happening with the drum. Hmm. And the hinger timpani I played on had a really limited range and really is really hard to of like about a fourth or so. It's really hard to get the high pitches on those drums, like to play the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra excerpt or something right. like that. I played on some uh, hangers at uh, orchestra auditions okay. and had fairly unpleasant experiences with it because of not being able to get those, those pitches, even though, we're supposed to be demonstrating that. I know in the audition. Anyway, um, so I'm thinking, well, maybe they just closed that. Maybe they just have a low tolerance there to try and keep it. I'm, I'm not the first person who figured out this isn't moving straight up and down. I sure, it's because it's really obvious when you start taking things apart and looking at it. But um anyway, after I f- after I had that experience, I thought. These drums cost, like, at that time, like $20,000. Yeah. And this is like a huge flaw. In my mind, that was a huge flaw. Sure. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you want a drum that moves vertically, moves the head vertically? I mean, this is like, it seemed like just so blatantly obvious to me that this is a huge problem in this instrument. Yeah. That every time you move the pedal away from some drums more and some drums less depending on how much play is in there and how much the arc the the you know the mass of the arc and and the movement and all that stuff um, you know it's it's it seemed like a big problem to me yeah and so i thought wow and we started talking about building drums because they didn't have any oh and and one of the there was a student also a student there uh who had built a set of drums a real rudimentary oh. like on welded frames and okay. stuff he was like a physics major or something, and so I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> if if other people can do it, I should be able to figure this out. Okay. Um, so I th- so um Barb Barbara Allen, my business partner, and I started talking about, well, let's build some drums. And I said, yeah, because let's you know fix this. So we wanted to build a drum that worked better and sounded and sounded better. Mm-hmm. And uh, mostly, I was comparing it to the ringers because that's what we had and those were at the top supposed to be the the top of the at, line. at that time yeah, yeah that was available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the other thing about the ringers that it always puzzled me it still puzzles me is that if you look at the the sizes of the drums and it's roughly like 31 29 26 and 23 and if you look there was a picture of uh and Ludwig's advertising for years and years, it has the drums all spread out in a row with Bill Ludwig standing behind them or something, okay, or just the drums all in a row. And if you look at that picture, you see the biggest drum has the the depth of the bowl is almost to the bottom. It's like it it looks kind of short and chunked off. Sure, and, but it's it's like there's one frame that all of these bowls have to fit into, and the of course they're different the The support struts are further apart on the right. bigger drums, but the way that the fr- the way that the frame is made, the the depth of the thirty inch drum and the depth of the twenty three inch drum are almost the same depth. Oh, and to me that didn't make also didn't make any sense because you would think that and and the shape changes fairly dramatically. Uh, the twenty three is more kind of like a, a longer barrel shape, and the the twenty the thirty is kind of uh, you know, shorter and cut off because, of course, it's really wide. So it can't the way the struts go in in at the bottom, it can't go down very far. It can't extend down very far because it runs into the would run into the frame. Well, that's really going to change the sound then if the bulls are different shapes, right? Well, wow. plus they're different depths yep. in relationship to their diameter. Yeah, each one is a different. There's different, different drums. Yeah, right. And so every time I looked at that picture, I thought, well why is this and it seemed like a bad idea so um there was also that design aspect like um so when we started building the timpani we started with the sound um, there are a lot of people who build timpani and as far as i can tell all of them just copied what was done before and maybe made it shinier or put a few things on it that are different up to today they're all the bas- basically the same design uh the the modern the modern drums although there's companies experimenting with kind of historical yeah uh, drums that never really made it in the marketplace but are really unique and uh interesting that's kind of popular right now but uh the Ringer timpani it seemed like there were a lot of flaws in the design to me from a musical aspect uh and from the player's standpoint so um we started we decided to start to build timpani. (laughs) That's the decision I think is like, why? I don't know. Because we're too dumb to know. It's like a really daunting idea. Wow. We just thought, well, well, let's just start doing it. So if you start, if you just start, that's the hardest part. Sure. And so we decided to start with the bowls because if we couldn't get, if we couldn't get bowls, right, we didn't need a frame.
0: That's for sure.
1: So we thought we'll start with the bowls and, um, that led to meeting Robert Picking, who was 104 years old or 102 <laughs> years old, and, uh, and Busiris, and learning he wouldn't make bowls for us because he didn't want to, he was making them for Hinger and the other people and others, uh, and good men, and he, you know, yeah. so he thought he would get rid of it. He was really great. We really loved meeting him and uh, hit it off with him, but he, he, he we asked him to make them, make the bowls for us, and he said no. And then, and he, we said, well, we want a different shape anyway. And she, he said, well, if you have some patterns, if you bring back, can make some patterns, and we'll talk about it. Oh, maybe I'll teach you how to do it. And so, hmm. three months later, we showed up with patterns, or Barb showed up with patterns, and and so, he decided to have us in his shop and have the crew. Teach us how <laughs> how to make the bowl. So um, uh, there's a lot of math involved in the and acoustics involved in coming up with a bowl shape. Right, and that's um, it's mentioned in the patent. And uh, specifically, the bowls are proportional in terms of depth and diameter. So the 32 inch bowl is really huge, and the 23 is fairly small. Um, so it's very very different from uh the ringer. So uh we had we had to figure out how to make bowls and that was really really very diff- difficult because of course they didn't show us how to do it. They showed us <laughs> ways to try to do it that weren't going to be successful. And
0: you can't go to the yeah. grocery store to get copper bowls. Right. Yeah, molds.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, and we had to find equipment and that was a whole saga in itself which wow. I won't go into right now, but um we did manage to do it and we showed our timpani at that nineteen eighty four convention in uh, Ann Arbor. And it had that that had that really pure, clear sound. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't know they what do. they were gonna sound like for a long time because we, we got the bowls made, then we had to make the frame. Right. And we decided to start start with the bowl and then build a frame that's not gonna inhibit the bowl. Yeah. But also a frame that we can, you know, that there's a cross piece that you can put the support struts any distance you want. So we're not going to have that problem where for the bigger bowls and the ringers, the support struts are fixed at the bottom and then they tip out away from that for the, the larger sizes. And we just slide, you know, move the support struts in or out on this cross piece wherever they need to be for that size. It's all in designing. A, it's a different design for the frame so that yeah. you can do that. So you don't need more parts. You just need you just uh, assemble it in a different place, drill right. holes in a different place. Yeah. So, it was spring. I think it was in the spring of 1984 that we first had a spider, wow. <laughs> and tuning lugs and a counter hoop, until so we could assemble a drum. And so the drums come apart. So there's like a top and a bottom. The sounding mm-hmm. part is the top, and you just if if you don't have the frame, you can just put this special size bolt up through the 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 bottom of the 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 cross piece that holds the support struts right and up through the spider and just put a nut on the top of it and use a wrench to tighten it to pull the spider down. And uh we made a set of those, we made three of those and I took them to Boston uh for recording session on K Gardner's Rainbow Path. So that was the actual premiere of those drums, no paint, no pedal mechanism, just the wrench. But they sounded they sounded really really great, huh. and that was the first time we heard them. We'd been working on it for two two and a half years. So that was kind of amazing. Hmm.
0: That that's and then you showed them at PASIC. The yeah, on, on a
1: on a um, prototype uh-huh. basis, right? Not production basis.
0: And that all is, a, that was to fix and for sound. It was to get pitch to play music and yeah. be musical.
1: Well, we were hoping to sell them and, you know, have a business too. Well, but then there's that. <laughs> yeah. But you said about it
0: for the same reasons Keiko designed the marimba.
1: Right, but I didn't yeah. know anything about the design, marimba design then. Sure. I had no idea it, it was, it was to make something better, sound better and work better Yeah, and be better. Mm-hmm. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah. So it was, looking back on it. And, you know, right now there's a uh, exhibit on, I donated the prototype set to the PAS museum and it's still on display. It'll be there another year. Yeah. Yeah. So there's you know the story and you can see the drums and
0: I saw it. I think I think that they're amazing. And I, I think that if, they had just come out last year with social media it would be a different story because yeah n- I probably I imagine you've been hearing from people this year ever since you donated them
1: well not so much no? but <laughs> I've been hearing a lot of it so I'm sorry you're not hearing it. <laughs> no I mean people don't people don't say much to me don't know too much about what's going on but well. yeah it's it's uh you know, I, I used those drums for a while, you know, I had the prototype set was the one that all the mistakes were made on. <laughs> sure, sure. Right. So, um, yep. mm-hmm. it, they're a little funky, but it didn't really affect the sound. Cool. And yeah, I thought they should be in the museum. Yeah. And going over the, all the materials that Barb and I did last fall, we, we made that movie that they're showing there. Right. Um, Barb did the editing. Nice. I was kind of like the gopher and backup key grip and <laughs> all that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Looking back, and it, it's like amazing. And and when we were doing it, it seemed like it took forever to do every step. Oh, I bet. I mean, it just seemed like it was like torturous, like it, to get stuff done and to to be able to make the bowls at with our equipment. that we could get and the hammering machine that we did actually find one. It wasn't like their hammering machines because there's no way to replicate that. So it wasn't as good, Mm -hmm. but it did work better than some other handmade bowls seem to work. You know, it was really, everything was a saga and was figuring it out. It took about a year and a half to figure out the whole bowl thing. And it was just really, uh, uh, really, really difficult. Wow. To get through that but you didn't give up no hadn't tried everything yet yeah is that basically sometimes it there you? were prayers for inspiration okay. all right <laughs> it was not smooth it was not easy it was very very difficult sure because of not not having training and some of not having real training and some of the assembly methods right not really having training in like welding and soldering and brazing and and metalworking and stuff like that, so there was a lot of trial and error. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of amazing.
0: It's really amazing. Yeah,
1: looking back on it, it's like, oh my god, I can't believe we did all that, and it didn't really take that long. When I when I look at the timeline, I I wrote out a timeline, and I'd never done that before because when you go through it, it just seems like this torturous experience. <laughs> You know, this isn't done yet. This isn't done yet. The, you know, the major, you know, won't say his name, is calling us saying, you must deliver these by the next month or else or else or else, you know, get it done. Yep. You know, and we're yeah. saying, are they done yet? And I say, well, no, no, they're not going to be shipped then. They're, we are waiting for blah 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 part from supplier. Da 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 da. So it's probably you know I'm not going to give you a date until I know exactly that they will be shipped on that date. Yeah. So there are some moments like that that I'm probably the only timpani player musician who ever said no to that conductor. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of entertaining. Interesting. But, but yeah, to get yelled at by people on the phone. But
0: you know it's so you also ran you ran a business you started.
1: Yes. But we, 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 we started a corporation uh-huh. we had a few like family shareholders, you know, who believed in mm-hmm. us, even though they thought we were crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started the corporation in 1982 and by 1984 in two years, and we hadn't done any of, we had done thinking about it and maybe some, some stuff, but in those two years, we went from starting a corporation to showing at a convention. Incredible. Which when you if you look at if anybody's ordered, what is it, Kickstarter? Yep. Like a Kickstarter, you know, high tech keyboard for your computer that's now been six years and they still have your three hundred dollars <laughs> and you don't have your keyboard. <laughs> or you know, actually two years is incredibly fast. Very fast. And we got a at that convention we made a sale. Oh. And so we got our first sale there. It was to one of the Air Force bands, uh, the one in Langley, uh, Norfolk. And the paperwork for that sale wasn't completed until March, the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, the person said, I'm going to buy these drums. Sure, sure. Okay, at the convention. And then the next November, we had he, he wanted to buy them in parts, like the top part, the sounding oh, part. Oh, right, right, right and the bass and other part because then he could buy because he had a bigger budget for parts for things yep. than for new instruments makes sense and he was a supply sergeant so makes he total like, sense yeah, and, he, and, he, and they ended up buying two sets but so then by the next November we had delivered you know I guess it only took a year to figure out the bowls. How about that? But the next November, we delivered delivered the, these. The, we called them a crank chain drum. You had a handle that you turned and a bike chain on it, so you didn't have to have the pedal mechanism. So we delivered that, and then sometime the next year or so, we delivered the bases. And that's actually very fast. Oh that's my. faster than some companies that have been in business for a long time that handcrafted timpani. Yep. It would take two, three, four years to get your drums from those folks. Which is kind of interesting. So, when I looked at the timeline, I realized we were really busy. <laughs> and we, this went really, actually, this was very, very quick. Yeah. And we stopped, I stopped doing it. I was really, I re- realized I was a lousy manager. Huh. I'm good at figuring things out and like prototyping and ideas and trying new things and learning new things and that's what excites me and has always been what I'm excited about. Being a manager and doing the same thing over and over, wow, that's like just stultifying and like I hate that. And I and I had gotten more and more involved in the marimba because I wanted to play music, not build timpani. Right. Um, I think. We did it for about 12, the total of about 12. The last set of timpani, I also I also built some historical timpani that I, I did all of the bowl work on those. I think four or five sets, and I think the last one of those I sold was in 1996, so 14 years.
0: You personally were pounding the bowl shapes.
1: Yes, yeah, so well, Barb, Barb did, I did most of the brazing work on the other ones, yeah. the torch work. <laughs> and she did the, worked with the, you don't pat it out from a flat shape. It's it's, how, it's a sheet metal process mm-hmm. that you cut out, and the hammering makes the copper uh, stretch and stiffen up in certain sure. ways to make the shape. The shape's determined by the pattern that you cut out. Uh, it's, um, you, you cut it out, and it's, it's a, like a, a cone. Like a an arc, two parallel arcs, and the long one on the top and the shorter on the bottom, and that tells you what angle. Sure. The it's going to be, and so then you put it together with a seam, a little bit like sewing. Yep. With a torch and brazing compound, and and and, um, and then you use when you hammer it, it's, it's it makes the copper stiff and it work hardens when you hammer it with a wooden hammer. Aha. Uh-huh. It gets stiffer and it and it looks like the old fashioned ice cream cone that comes to a point at the bottom. Yep. That's cut off. So yes. it looks like the top of a ice cream cone. And then you bring in the bottom a little bit with some hammering. It's a little bit like gathering material in and swishing it together. Makes I don't sense. know if you sew. Yep. It's a little bit like that. Then you cut out a, a circle, a disc. Sure. And you it's called raising that. You you pound on it in a special form in a, in, in a tree stump and it's, you make it into like a shallow dish shape. Uh-huh. And then you put that in the bottom yeah, circle and then you hammer the whole thing. So the hammering is really kind of a smoothing out. Some of it is actually making the metal, drawing it in and bringing the, making the bottom circle a little bit smaller mm-hmm. and adding a curve to the side. Some of it is that, it's called drawing it in, but mostly it's, Uh, kind of just continuing to shape it and the shapes really primarily determined by the pattern by that difference between the top curve and the bottom curve and the slope the angle of the side yeah so i did the the historical timpani were all smaller they were they're only about 18 inches Mm -hmm. uh, 14 inches deep or so not 20 or 28 or right not like the 32 is a really gigantic bowl yeah yeah. So I did, so I did those. I could do those myself. So that was kind of fun. I,
0: maybe I'm the only one, but I can't be, I'm, I i can not be the only person who didn't know you were literally building these yourself.
1: Oh no, a lot of people didn't know that. And that's it, I didn't realize that until like this, the, the, like about a year ago. Yeah. And You know, we showed them at the Cloyd Duff class a couple times, and he helped with the design. He came out to our shop, and uh, Cleveland Orchestra was in Bloomington one year, one November. He came out to the shop, and we talked about we wanted to put an ankle pedal in the same kind of placement like where the Ludwig is, and he really recommended we put them on the sides uh, like the uh, standard configuration um, where your feet are together for the two inside drums and um and other things and and um did he think you had a staff that was he doing knew it? we made them okay okay he's he saw us making he saw it in process he saw it when we didn't have a frame yeah and there wasn't anybody else there but we showed when we showed them and some people talked to us and seemed to know that we had done them but mm-hmm. i'm on the timpani shop talk facebook group right and there's a timpani player that was at one of these Chloe Dev classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a long time ago in the mid-1980s uh, in Colorado. And plus we, were, we showed at Paysig a whole bunch of Paysigs and talked to people, and they'd come over and talk to us, right? Yeah. And anyway, so this person, when we, there, was a, there was a thread on Facebook about uh, hammering timpani bowls or something okay. like that. It was about timpani bowls. Yeah, and I know a lot about that subject. (laughs) Yes, probably more than even though there are a lot of timpanists who feel like they know a lot about it. I have a special additional knowledge that they don't have, obviously. (laughs) And so, so we're talking about these. And so, I talked about you know for long after I quit building the timpani. I mean, I was busy doing other stuff. So I didn't really talk about it much since in like twenty years, twenty two. 1996. That's 23 Mm -hmm. years. But these are people who are in my age group. Right? You know, women didn't play timpani in orchestras. And women still don't play timpani in in major orchestras. Yeah. And so that, that part of it is kind of invisible, I guess. And anyway, some people knew that we made them and we talked about it. And I just... It never occurred to me that someone would see that work and have us and and when we say we do this i mean it's like would not realize that we actually did it it never it never occurred to me in all this time okay and when we're talking about this 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 timpani player this so are you saying that you actually like hammered the bowl and i said yes that was this year that was last year that was last year (laughs) And then I realized, these people thought we were like the bikini models at the boat show. Yes. Somebody else made the boat, and we're just here with the literature. Yep. Yep. And I thought, really? Yeah, this whole time. So when when we took the timpani to PAS, you know, I moved here recently Mm -hmm. from Virginia. I had them in my studio there. I didn't want to have them in my garage here. Sure. I didn't want to rent space. I wanted they have to go somewhere, and this is a really good time for them to do that because I need to like start moving things out. I don't want to. I've cleaned out elderly parents' homes, and I've done that several times for. uh, uh, And I don't want to leave. I want things to be neat and clean for anybody who comes after me who has to take care of stuff. Yeah. That they don't have to deal with that. And so, gave them to the museum, and then when we took them there in August, uh, frankly, I was surprised that they would take them. Oh. Because, let's just say I've been a PAS member since 1950. I'll just leave it at that. Right, right. Yep. So, I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Multiple times. Anyway, so I was surprised, and I was very happy That there's someone there who could see value in this and was excited to have them for the museum and i thought this has to happen while now good this has got to go this has got to happen now get the paperwork signed get it there so that it doesn't fall through that's exciting so when we took it there that was what was on my mind in august Mm -hmm. when we took the timpani there and so Barb came down, she lives in Minneapolis. We got them out in the garage I went to clean them up because of course I didn't clean them, they were in my <laughs> studio. I'm not gonna, you know. Yeah. We'd go over and play them when I needed to play them. Students used them for their college auditions or tape, tape things or practicing for, some, for all state tryouts and stuff like that. And if I used timpani, needed timpani, I would usually get something else or rent some from a, something easy and you know, simple to move around. Cause these you know, are like your some prototypes. Lyrics. Well, okay. and they're very heavy. They're like 150 uh, or 160 pounds each. Oh and my gosh. You know, if yeah, you're going right. to do a church gig, they're too loud anyway because you're going to play really small sure. sound or you'll drown out everybody, you know. So uh, we get them to the museum, and they didn't tell us we unload it Anyway, we, we brought the drums here and took a lot of video and pictures of them because Barb's a videographer, and she wanted to do that, and I cleaned them all up. So we spent... I spent like a week cleaning them. We spent, I don't know, a day or two getting them ready. And then we put them in the truck, rented a truck, and drove them down to Indianapolis. And it was like, great. Cool. Because it's, it's so exciting that they're going to be in the museum. Yeah. And we get there, and we get them unloaded. And then we're finished with the first round of stuff. And, and uh, guys, the guy at the museum is looking at someone and said, should we tell them? Should we tell them? Have you told them yet? Like, tell us what. And then they told us they're going to do this exhibit i had no idea
0: oh you didn't i had
1: no idea it was the furthest thing from my mind i figured someday someday sometime they'll put them out and i wasn't thinking about an exhibit i was thinking get them to the museum so the museum has them and i don't have them of course they'd need an exhibit well but
0: but at the time you weren't thinking no we were
1: we were not thinking we were like oh my god yeah can't believe it so it was very it was very exciting and gratifying yeah. That it was going to be exhibited, and during Pesek, it was like after fifty years to have some recognition for what I've done. Yeah, um, with a career anyway. So then we we put together. We had a lot of material. We we put together the film the film for it. That's right. We made the the movie for it, and they and they did the exhibit. And uh, Elizabeth is the name of the person who did the museum exhibit there, and she did. They did an excellent job, and uh, but that was really really amazing. It's really and nice. it's there for two years. It looks great. Yeah, and going through all the materials and going back and looking at things and scanning and photos, and so we've got a lot you know just a lot of amazing stuff and yeah. I've got all the bu- I've got the important business records some of the stuff I've gotten rid of you know like canceled checks and things <laughs> like that because I've got it in some other material sure but the whole story is just and looking back on it is just kind of unfathomable that we did all that but we did but you did yeah and then you wrote and a we book did. And then... Well, yeah. I mean... <laughs> this you <laughs> So I, I, do these, is, I do these. I do these. I just like, am attracted to these really large, impossible projects. I don't know, I just, you know, like trying to learn Japanese or something, you know, or learn the violin again, you know, things that you can spend your life doing. But, yeah, my current project is musicianship and phrasing and expression for marimba players. How can they increase that in their and add that to their uh, experience of the marimba? And I think it has to come from teaching differently, Mm -hmm. teachers exposing, recognizing that and those those elements that we aren't yet adding to the uh, instruction.
0: Looking at all of these huge projects you've done, it's, um, I'd be very proud if I had done one of them (laughs) myself. And I... You're just a seeker,
1: perhaps. Well, I just follow, I'm just following the things that are interesting and compelling to me. And then when it's done, I'm, you know, not that interested in it anymore. There you go. I'm interested in something else. The thing I like about being a performer yeah, is that, and there's a kind of a lull right now in interesting marimba music, mm. I, in, in my personal opinion. In general, maybe there's, there's more going on in Europe and in other places here than here, and it's a little hard to find out about those pieces. But in general, when in music, it's kind of unlimited. What you can do with that is kind of, it's, it's really unlimited. Yeah. And there's always something new and always something different to work on or to figure out or think about. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a good, that's a good fit for me because you know, you're not going to run out of new material to work on. You're always curious. Perhaps is another word. Well, I don't like don't I don't like repetition of the same experience all the time. Sure. You know, at a certain level it's okay. But yeah. then I want some things that are new or different. So I don't know. So I'm not thinking of the timpani, it was like it's a whole sequence of really small challenges, the bowls. And and if you just break it down, it's like anything breaking it down into small challenges and just keep Working on each one, yeah, and trying to figure out how to make those happen, yeah, you know and and i don't I never thought about can I do it or not? <sighs> I thought if other people can do it, I can figure out how to do it, and I might figure out it's like home repair, I mean, if you know Joe the plumber can figure out how to do the plumbing plumb in a you know a toilet and put a wax ring in the toilet, yeah, I can do that. If somebody else can do it, I can do it. Why wouldn't I be able to do it? You uh, understood, yeah. So I mean, it's a matter of a matter of. Well, it's like my mother said: follow each step, find the directions, Mm -hmm. like get the or in other words, get the information that you need. Seek information, and one of those things is finding out how other people do it. How do other people do this? And I can tell you when 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 I pay. Somebody four hundred and fifty dollars to put a new sump pump in my sump pit at my house, and they pull something out and cut a piece of PVC pipe with a saw, that white pipe that you can just cut that a lot of people have done with a saw, and unplug it, then they put a new one in and glue it up and plug it in and I charge me four hundred and fifty dollars. I really think I can do that, <laughs> and I know every percussionist who is hearing this thinks the same thing right right, right. it's the same it's the same attitude yeah now if it took a cnc routing machine and a building that you know if it took a whole bunch of tools that i don't have and can't get yeah or highly specialized knowledge or if it was like you know nanotechnology or something you know no i can't do that that's not within my ability or the ability to get the materials or whatever
2: mm-hmm.
1: but if it's something that seems more
0: straightforward why not especially my current students but also people who are my generation uh, there's so much more anxiety and uh, my current students are worried about right now and also in the future instead of just focusing on the process and focusing on finding out the steps and I think we would all be much healthier
1: and more productive if we did what you do. Look. Well, the the thing about worrying is that it's like, I, I read a quote, you know, people put these supposed quotes on Facebook, but it was, it was something like, it's like you're paying off a debt that you haven't incurred yet. Ah, yeah, sure. <laughs> you didn't buy it and incur the debt, but you're like putting your money into that. I mean, it's, if you can't do anything, if it's something you can't do anything about, there's yep. no point in worrying. So I'm I'm not really I've never been much of a worrier, and I think probably my parents didn't worry about stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they would just you know approached things in a pragmatic, matter-of-fact way, and yeah. didn't. There was no like drama in my you know in my household. You know, it was just things are hmm. pretty calm and nice. and so just doing projects and or do you know growing up just. You know, there are things I wanted to do that wasn't allowed to do, which is a whole different thing. But uh uh but worrying, you know, and the other the thing about worry if if things don't go well, you know, I had a I had an experience this is about about music and you know, you have to be perfect all the time, right? Mm-hmm. At my undergrad school nobody ever nobody had that kind of attitude okay. that it has to be perfect. In fact my teacher was like didn't really say anything. you just you could kind of Improvise part part of your piece, cool. you know, or as long as it was dramatic, as long as it had a musical wow. dramatic content and really connected with the audience, she didn't really care. She never said anything about if you missed some notes or you redid some, you know, you didn't play the ending the way it was written. Yeah. In fact, when I played like the uh, Elliot Carter, I think it's the March. The way I didn't like the way that ended because mm-hmm. it kind of fades out. Right. And I didn't like that, so I just like did something different for the ending. Just kind of, you know, kind of improvised, yeah. uh, slightly improvised and made it have a strong dramatic ending because mm-hmm. I thought that fit better in the program. And it was fine. No problem. You know, and that's got its own issues. And when I went to graduate school, it was like the opposite. So that was good. But really, what's it, this, it's about what's the worst thing that can happen if you make a mistake? Really, what's going to happen? But when I got to IU, there was a real heavy emphasis on perfection. No, perfection and you're never good enough. You're never good enough. You're never good enough. That kind of stuff. A lot of it was mind games. But I was there. Uh, it took 2 years to do my master's degree because I had an assistantship for 2 years. Mm-hmm. So, 2 years to practice, have the facilities and etc. So, in the summer in between, I went on a like a road trip and I had a friend who was in at school in Curtis in oh. Philadelphia. So, I went to visit her and we went to a concert and we went to hear Philadelphia Orchestra, and there's a there's a piece that's got like one cymbal crash hmm. in movement. I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what it is. It might be New World, but anyway. Uh, so Michael books. So we're sitting in the concert. We get to this piece. We get to the movement, and the percussionists weren't sitting like right next to each other. A little spread out. Okay, they're just sitting there, you know, waiting as you do. <laughs> and the part where the, the cymbal part starts to get closer yeah. and closer and they're all like looking straight ahead yeah right they're not looking at each other they're not moving around they're just looking straight ahead and the symbol part comes and goes and nobody and, plays the symbol part hmm. and then about t- 10 or 15 seconds later michael bookspan gets up and he picks up the symbols you know and you know gets all set and you can see the heads moving just a little bit. And he's getting ready to play the cymbal crash. Yeah. And he's getting ready to play it. And he stands there. And then he sets the cymbals down. And he sits down. And I thought, he's not going to get fired. Yeah. He's just going to get laughed at about this for the rest of his life. <laughs> They're just going to say, hey, Mickey, what were you doing over there? Right. <laughs> this is going to be the best, the joke, of the, the joke of the month in the percussion section. You had one thing to do. You had one job. <laughs> you had one job, and and then I realized it was just kind of BS. Wow! And that yep. everybody makes mistakes. Yes. And so I had that experience, and that changed. And and for for marimba playing, and I don't know if you have any uh, any mallet players, but I'll I'll tell this short story about uh, it's about Keiko Abe, and what and note mistakes, and how important they are. I studied with her, you know, for five weeks in Utrecht. I went to almost every concert. She she played a whole bunch of concerts, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, probably two or three, a couple a week, you know, it was a lot. Mm. So I went to every concert. I knew her repertoire. I knew all the pieces and, you know, cause she played from, a, you know, a, about a list of about eight or 10 pieces. They weren't all exactly the same, but, uh, very similar programs. And so the night before the last night of the, whole thing there was a concert in utrecht okay and um i asked her if i could record it i had a little some little you know cassette tape recorder of some kind i know it must have been a cassette (laughs) tape recorder and she didn't really want to let me do it Mm. but she said okay (laughs) and she was i didn't realize how tired she was oh sure and so you know i sat through the concert and i sat uh it was a a hall that had, it was a small recital hall, and the front row seats were kind of below the level of the stage. About So if I was looking up, I sat in the first or second row, and looking up, I could see the keyboard and her face. Okay. I couldn't really see, and that was it. And I learned a couple things that night. One is I learned how she aims at every single note before she plays it, and I could, because I could see her eyes moving all over the keyboard. Wow. Which was really, I was really glad I sat in that seat. Wow. But the second thing I learned was about wrong notes, and i had I listened to that concert and it sounded perfect to me, yeah, when you were there when I was there, when I was in the concert hall, it sounded perfect, it was like so beautiful it was the pieces were so expressive the 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 crunchy, gnarly thing was crunchy, gnarly, and it was and the other it was just really, really fabulous mm-hmm. and then flew home the next day and then i'm like in morning because i have to go back to oh. my dig in marimba <laughs> you know in my little house and it's like that whole the whole experience is now over and so about two or three months later i also had a recording of marimba spiritual in there because that's one of the pieces that they did yep or maybe it was even the next year i didn't listen to recording for a long time oh, wow because i didn't sure Really need to, but then I listened to the recording, and she probably played like I don't know, only like 95% right notes, which is not. That's a lot of wrong notes. If only if you're making missing five percent, it wasn't. There and were that, that piece, yeah. <laughs> well, no, just in the, in the whole concert, okay. there were wrong notes everywhere. Sure, sure, sure. Just a note or here, because she was yeah. really exhausted, and the the percussion teacher who had taken her out to dinner her concert was at eight o'clock. They walked into the building at like 10 till eight. Ugh. She didn't get to warm up at all that day. Oh my gosh. She just had to go out and play. Right. She was even like five or 10 minutes late because she had to change clothes. I mean, I couldn't believe it. The Guy was kind of anyway. Mm-hmm. And what that told me was I didn't hear those wrong notes. I knew those pieces. I'd heard them for five weeks Some of them more than that. And when she played that, it sounded perfect to me. Now, why? But I could hear the wrong notes all over the recording. And she knew they would be there. That's why she didn't want me to record it. Amazing. I'm sure that that's why. Sure. Because she knew how tired she was. Yeah. She knew what was going to happen. Yeah. But she played with such conviction. And when you play a melodic line going Mm. up... And if you miss one note in the middle of it, the ear fills in some of the what you expect to hear if you set up that expectation. Right. And how she performs and how she plays it, it's very, very the musical expression part of it is really clear in terms of what these phrases are and what they mean, you know, especially in her playing back in those days. And so I realized, of course we want to play all the right notes. Mm-hmm. But we're not the chances of us actually playing every single note right. Is really 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 small and is it better to play all the right notes without that spontaneity and being in the zone with the music Mm -hmm. and having that that human expression and and communication from the music is are the notes more important than that and for Keiko the answer is no and for, I think when you, we have this thing that we have to do in music, which is for some people, and for a long time, I would describe it this way, have control, but not have control. Sure. And actually what I would say now is like not have control hmm. and not think about control, but have music that, that you're, you're, you're in that you have to be in the music. Yeah. And when you hit something that's not right, not let that jar you out of that state. Right out of that flow state because it's uh, uh for me and for what with what keiko does you're in this kind of it's almost like altered reality mm-hmm. flow state and and so you want to the most important thing is staying in that state and not getting letting yourself get knocked out of it and then you can communicate and that's what the audience
0: hears right yeah yep i don't remember anything uh about that 93 columbus concert she did except for awe
1: and power and beauty yep i remember that concert i would describe it i helped actually i use, i would help with the sound talk okay. with the sound people sure to help tweak the marimba sound because they can you know sound person can ruin your yes sound <laughs> so i was back at the sound booth back there to just you know i was there for the like tech yeah part and just you know a little here a little there you know because I knew what I knew what she wanted and I'm not saying it I'm just saying so the sound part you heard what she wanted yeah but how I would describe that is some people I'm not sure charisma is the right word for it but some people when they're on stage they become huge Mm -hmm. your perception of them is huge yeah and there's some jazz singers I've heard that sound like fabulous and you think they're really big and they're like five feet tall. Yes, right, right, right. And they're tiny and Keiko's like that too. But I would, for that concert, for me, that stage glowed with white light. Yes, it did. It was amazing. She was bringing that white light into her performance with her musical, the force of her musical energy. And the whole, it was just uh, amazing, and I was I was just talking. Well, I was just in Belgium, and Ludwig Albert. That was the first time he heard her play, and he said the same thing about that concert. At that at that time, her promo pictures were uh,
0: were full of colored lights, and she had on um, sequins. Uh huh. And I
1: thought, but, but no, the whole thing's glowing. It's not just her. It's like the whole yes, room is glowing. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I had thought. Oh that's so silly. That's for a percussionist. That's for a marimba player. Look at what they did for her and then I saw that concert and I thought, "Oh, they're just trying to approximate what what happens when she plays." Yeah, and I saw that. <laughs>
1: that's that's that was the most amazing concert I ever saw her play. She's really at the height of her power and ability to to just it's it's kind of like a zen. Yeah, she would say the music. She's, she's channeling the music. the The music is there, and it's just going through her. That she's not there. I believe that her, and it's it's just a really amazing. It was a really amazing concert. It was a really amazing thing. I was going to school with one of her
0: students at the time. One of her students had come to the U.S. to be a grad student, and then we went backstage afterwards to say hi to Keiko and Keiko I was just depleted oh yeah and um you know they I don't think they
1: spoke to each other I think they just both cried and then we left yeah well you know so. when she in her teaching she uses that that musical energy I think I, I mentioned mm-hmm. when I did time for marimba she pulled yeah. me along and I let her pull me along <laughs> yeah get into her musical she uses that uh when she teaches to help her students move into that musical yeah. kind of space i
0: mean i am sure this all seems like would sound like mumbo jumbo to somebody who's never
1: experienced it but it's it's very uh, eastern very eastern, eastern culture yep. it's very eastern and there's a uh there's a section in my book about it right that ex- kind of explains it yep. and does pretty decent job it's really hard to talk about and for people who don't understand it I think it's a way to get you started on that's it that's right thank you for mentioning that, that um, yeah and I think uh it, there's there's a thing in the art of calligraphy yes. Japanese cali- calligraphers where, and it's kind of a Zen, it's kind of a Buddhism thing, and it's and what the artist does, and this is what Keiko does, is before playing, make your mind empty, empty of expectation, mm-hmm. empty of any uh, kind of desire, like a desire for a certain outcome, a desire to play all the right notes, a desire of anything, any, just let go of all of that, make your mind empty, People can experience that by doing transcendental meditation if they want to, to get to that kind of mental space. Right. That's kind of similar. But then, and wait for music to inhabit her body. Mm-hmm. The wait. She says, "Wait for the music to come." Mm-hmm. And for her, then she she is, the music is making her is making her make the movements to make the sound. She's completely immersed in the music. Yeah, and I think a lot of I think jazz musicians are often in that kind of space. I think classical musicians are mostly not in that kind of space, although I know even when I've been I've been playing the violin for the past five or six years again after not doing it for forty or fifty years, (laughs) and when I'm trying to tune. When I, or when I'm playing scales and stuff, I can I easily get in that kind of space. And really, it's listening and being being so focused on listening, and the sound, so focused on the sound that I completely forget about my body and my hands and yeah. anything else. I'm just focused on sound. Yep. And back to the calligrapher, the idea is that the the uh, artist would sit by a in front of the canvas or the rice paper or whatever they're gonna. Do the painting on, get the get the paintbrush ready, have the ink ready, and sit and wait and make their mind empty. And then, at some moment, there's a connection with the art that's always there. And for Keiko, it's with the music that's all it's there all the time. Mm-hmm. It's always there, and it comes through from almost from this other dimension. And the artist makes one or two or three movements right and in that moment brings that unseen existence of art into the reality of the moment and it's done yeah. it's not planned or thought out it's like the opposite of planned or thought out and for music for keiko it's it's really about listening and just being so focused on the sound you are go, you are in the music you're in the sound and you're shaping that as you play and that's what, at a high-level performance, what you're doing, yep. you're shaping the sound, and that's what's communicating the spontaneity of doing that is what's communicating with the audience. And, yeah, so thinking about, there are a lot of people, and I didn't realize this For a long time but there are a lot of people that kind of think their way through marimba pieces like yeah i'm using this technique here and then i've got to turn my hand this way when i get to this note and make sure i reach over there for that note and stuff like that so when they're performing they're going through kind of a mental checklist of Hmm. of the piece which is like kind of unimaginable to me that you would not be like just listening to the sound that you're producing but there are people who don't really listen to the sounds that they're producing that it's kind of a, it's a whole, it's a very, very different kind of thing, and that's something that does exist. Yeah. And I would say that's, like, really not in the zone.
0: <laughs> I think that the, the, the all of that, the focused language and, and being right in the moment, that's that's a, the kind of thing you hear
1: all performers at a high level speak about. Right. Inhabit the character. Yep. Yep. And uh, so one another comment about this from Keiko and I would say this is it really is the answer. She did a like a question answer kind of classy type thing one year when she played at the convention and so there was you were know, up and I I helped I her with the English. Yep. Uh, she was afraid that she might not she did fine but she was afraid that she might have questions so I was there just to kind of give her backup if somebody mm-hmm. asked a question and she didn't get it I could rephrase it for her uh, to get anyway so I don't know if she played some pieces played some pieces or whatever but then the question answer session one of the questions was like a college looked like a college student about 10 or 10 rows back or 15 rows back from the front and he got the microphone and he said something like Miss Abe um you know how can you, how can you play so well? How can you, what, what can I do so I can, you know, be really good too? How are you, what are you doing? How are you doing this? Do this. (laughs) What should I do? And so Heiko got the, you know, got the microphone and she lifted it up and she said, listen to every note. And that was it. She was done. And, uh, and the student was like, but, but, yeah (laughs) but and and i said moving on (laughs) um so he couldn't it was like there's some super secret formula it's not it can't possibly be that simple but it is that simple the answer is that simple but to do that i mean you know that's takes a real open and accepting and peaceful mind right to be able to do that yeah And you have to have trained your body to be able to produce the sounds without needing uh, really what one of the things you're doing is your subconscious, if you expect to hear, if you expect to do a certain thing, your subconscious brain will help you do it. For example, if you expect to take a drink of water in a glass and you pick up the glass and take a drink, you don't have to think about is the glass going to come to your lips or is it going to go to your ear? Or your chin. Right. Right? You don't think about that. You just think water and your hand automatically goes to your, the cup goes to your mouth. You've developed that technique so long ago. And you're expecting it, but you're expecting it to come to your mouth. Yes. Right? Because you're getting a drink of water. So you're expecting that. So you train your body, but more importantly, you train your mind for the sound that you want to hear and when you want to hear it. And that's why you have to know, that's why you internalize the piece. You have to know it well enough. You don't have to have it memorized, but you have to know it well enough that you have it internalized so that you, when you expect to hear the next note, your hand plays it. It goes to the right place and you have to know, you have to put the practice time in so that your mind knows where that note is Mm -hmm. and your body, your muscles know where that note is. But you don't think about that. You just expect to hear it. Right. So it takes a lot of practice and study to do that. But it also, the expectation in your mind is the sound, the pitch, whatever. That's what's got to be in your mind when you're playing it. Because you're accessing that expectations, accessing your subconscious that then moves your body. Yeah. If this makes sense. Absolutely. That's yeah. what performers are doing. Yep. So tension, aggression, uh, emotion, when you put emotion in the music, it's not that you're emotional, (laughs) right? It's the music makes the listener conveys emotion to the listener. You don't want to put yourself in between something in between the two things of the expectation and your subconscious. You want to keep that channel open. Well, thank you so much for talking about all
0: of this. And I think that, uh, we could probably have three more Sessions to talk about all of the things you've done. So hopefully we will be able to do it again at some point. But thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Your story and all of your thoughts and advice for some of us who are still learning and seeking.
1: Thank well, you- it, I think that everyone's path is unique. Yeah. And I think following what really resonates with you and following what you are interested in is the first place to start and not doing things for yourself, not for other people or what other people's expectations or what you think might be other people's expectations. Right. Especially it's not that easy to let go of. It's not always that easy to figure out, well, what do I really, who am I and what do I really want to do and what am I interested in? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you think you have to do some things, certain ways and, it's it, it, getting rid of preconceived or the attitudes that you've grown up with and have been around you can be a major task. Yes, well said, <laughs> a task. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you seem to uh, have done it very well, and I think that's a great model for some of us to follow. Many of us to follow. So, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>